Mark chapter 1. We're in the series, we're in a series on the, from the gospel according to Mark. And we have been, of course, in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 thus far. I'm going to take a moment here to read those first eight verses as context for our message today from verses 9 through 11 of Mark chapter 1. I want to preach today from the words of the Lord himself. You are my beloved son, God says to Jesus. Here in Mark chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. Read along silently with me as I read from the NIV this morning, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to pause right there as we prepare to come into our text for the morning. There's an old saying that goes something like this. What goes up must come down. Are you familiar with that? But with God, The opposite is often true. What goes down must come up. For example, Jesus observed in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, will be exalted. In other words, what goes up must come down. But what goes down must come up. This truth principle, what goes down must come up, could be applied to the baptism of Jesus. Think about it and walk with me carefully and give your undivided attention to the word of God today as we walk through this passage. Now, before I head on 
Think about it for a moment. Jesus' words again, he who exalts himself will be brought down. What goes up must come down. (laughs) But he who humbles himself will be exalted. What goes down with God must come up. Again, we see this principle applied to the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it, brothers and sisters. He came down from heaven. But he didn't stay forever. Why? Because it was, it was required of him that he must go back up to heaven. And he did. He came down in the virgin birth. But he went back up in the ascension. And we know that he is soon to return to judge the living and the dead. But it is true. What goes down must also come up with God. I'm reminded also of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 uh, on this point. And if you would, brothers and sisters, I'm going to take just a moment to read Philippians from Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, to further illustrate the principle that what goes down must come up with God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude, now Paul the Apostle's writing to the Philippian Christians here, And he's talking to them about the humility of unity and oneness and togetherness in the congregation and and rejecting all selfishness and self-centeredness and selfish agendas in the congregation. Even at verse 4 by saying, each of you should not look uh, only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Verse 5 now, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He came down. He descended or condescended himself. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He condescended himself. He came down. But God exalted him to the highest place. In the book of Proverbs, the scripture says, With humility comes honor. When one humbles themselves, God will honor them. That which goes down must come up when it comes 
to the kingdom of God and the economy of the kingdom of God. The fact that Jesus submits himself to John's baptism is very interesting precisely because it is an act of humility by Jesus. He humbly went down into the waters of the Jordan and when he came up, something profound happened. Now, look with me at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now pause right there. Verses 9, 10, and 11, we want to focus on today. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus does not include the kind of details you would find in the other three synoptic gospels. There are three synoptic gospels, by the way, as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is set off separately by scholars, although it too is a gospel account of Jesus. It is different in a number of ways than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the account of the Jesus baptism here in Mark doesn't have the details that you see in Matthew and Luke. This is because Mark's purpose is to focus specifically on what happened at Jesus' baptism. Details about the family of Jesus, uh, the family background and biography of Jesus uh, are not essential to Mark's point here. What happens when Jesus is baptized is Mark's point. And that's what we want to focus on today. Jesus and what happens at his baptism and what it means. The significance of it, the importance of it for us today and for our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of our relationship with him. Verse 9. In verse 9, we see, first of all, what I call the dedication of the Son of God. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Mark just simply says, in those days. He doesn't give any uh, further information regarding exactly when this was, etc. You have to look elsewhere in the New Testament for those details. But remember, those details are not Mark's point. Mark gets to the point. And the way Mark has written this gospel overall is he has a way of moving the story quickly, uh, very fast, and he hits high points 
because he's making a major point. Uh, he doesn't often get bogged down in details. I shouldn't say bogged down, but go through a lot of detail, except when he's explaining something, uh, recognizing that his original readers uh, were Roman Christians and mostly Gentiles who, were, who might have been unfamiliar with a number of Jewish customs. Mark will take the time to explain those things on the way to making the point in his portrait of Jesus. Here in verse 9, we have the dedication, I would call, of the Son of God. In those, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is significant. Let me say three things about verse 9 and Jesus coming from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Number one, it was an act of obedience on Jesus' part. This was an act of obedience on the part of our Lord. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Secondly, it was an act of humility. That Jesus not only came from Nazareth in Galilee, but he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus, the Son of God, consider who we are looking at here. It's Jesus who comes to be baptized. Not only was it an act of obedience and an act of humility, but it was also an act of righteousness. For over in Matthew chapter 3, we are told the detail that Mark does not give us here in his gospel. That when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John protested and said, you come to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by, by you. And you come to me? And Jesus responded to John in Matthew chapter 3 by saying, let it be so for now. It is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus' act here was an act of obedience, an act of humility, and it was also an act of righteousness, as we will see as we move further along here in the Word of God. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He is the only one who is said to have come from Galilee, of course, Jesus and those who were accompanying him. We're told elsewhere in the other Gospels that people came from Jerusalem and from Judea and all of the surrounding region where John had been baptizing in the Jordan. Jesus, in distinction from everybody else who is crowding in there to see John, to hear John, and to be baptized by John, most of them, not all of them by any means, but most of them. Jesus, however, comes from much farther away. He comes from in the north of Israel, Galilee. This is a trek on foot that um, is approximately, well, close to 100 miles. Somewhere between 70 and 100 miles. Jesus makes his way to where John was baptizing in the River Jordan. So pause right there with me for a moment and think about this. God the Son, 
made the physical trek from Nazareth in Galilee, perhaps further than anyone else had come, in order to be baptized. Jesus, the Son of God. No ordinary human being, but the Son of God. He who is fully God and who is fully human. Born of the Virgin Mary. And John came to recognize him and protested that, Jesus, you come to me to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. Now, I want you to note, make note of this. Can you see the obedience and the humility in the very actions of Jesus making his way all the way to where John was baptizing in order to be baptized? Well, for one thing, it should be very easy for us to extrapolate from this that baptism was something very important to Jesus. And this baptism had a very uh, particular and specific significance for Jesus. But the point should not be lost on us. That baptism is important to God. Now, John's baptism is not exactly what you could call Christian baptism as it would, as baptism would come to be understood. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance and John is a reflection. In fact, he is the end of the great old, the final, if you will, of the great Old Testament prophets of Old Testament scripture who called upon the people to turn back to the Lord, to return to the Lord, as we pointed out in a previous message. But Jesus comes here to submit to John John's baptism and to be baptized in the waters of the Jordan. Let me just say with a quick footnote, anybody who has come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ and trusted him as Lord and Savior and is able to do so, of course, should be baptized. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 8 and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch, an official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, had been in Jerusalem celebrating, and he was on his way back uh, to Ethiopia from Jerusalem, and he was in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah in what we would know as Isaiah chapter 53. He's reading uh, the prophet Isaiah God sends Philip up to his chariot. Philip hears him reading the prophet Isaiah and asks the eunuch, do you understand what you are reading? And he says, how could I unless somebody explains it to me? Philip, he, he invites Philip up into, the, into his chariot and Philip explains, expounds, teaches the eunuch from Isaiah chapter 53 where he was reading uh, along verses 3 through 6, uh, that he was speaking of the Lord Jesus. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And listen, brothers and sisters, Philip explained and expounded the scripture to him, made it plain to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian believed the gospel. And it was the Ethiopian who said to Philip, 
Can I be baptized? There's water right here close by. He was ready to be baptized upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Philip do? How did he respond? Immediately, Philip got down with him out of the chariot, and they went into that pool of water, and Philip baptized him right there. And when the eunuch came up out of the water, Philip immediately disappeared into thin air before him. And God took Philip away somewhere else, and the Ethiopian eunuch went back home to Ethiopia rejoicing in the Lord. He had repented, believed the gospel, and was baptized even before he got back home. So I don't understand people who claim to be Christians but somehow or another want to lag on baptism. For baptism, Christian baptism, that is to say, is our right of initiation into the Christian family, the Christian faith. It is our public proclamation that we are Christ followers. In other words, that we have died with Christ, been buried buried with him, and been raised from the dead with Christ. But here, what Jesus is doing prefigures that. What Jesus is doing here is an act of righteousness. And we're going to explain it a little bit further as we walk through these next verses. Verse 10. Verse 9, we saw the dedication of the Son of God in his obedience, humility, and righteousness. Verse 10, the disclosure of the heavens. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open. Wow. Now I want you to think about this. The disclosure of the heavens. What does this mean? Well, first of all, Jesus' descent into the waters symbolizes his death on the cross. You see, the way Mark words this in verse 10, he came to be, in verse 9, he came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. He doesn't describe specifically Jesus going down into the water because he doesn't need to. He focuses on Jesus coming up out of the water, meaning that Jesus had to go down into the water first. So the significance here of verse 10 is, and the way Mark words it for us is, Jesus' descent into the waters of baptism actually symbolizes his death on the cross. His ascent from the waters symbolizes his resurrection from the dead. So what is Jesus doing here by being baptized? He is fulfilling all righteousness, as Matthew recorded for us, in that he is prefiguring what he would do for all when he dies on the cross of Calvary, brothers and sisters. You see, his descent into the water uh, is like uh, some of us describe when we talk about baptism uh, and water as the liquid grave. 
because it produces the picture of one who has died and is going down into the grave. Remember, with God, what goes down must come up. When we baptize somebody in the church here, what are they doing? They are saying by demonstrating, they're saying to the world, I have died with Christ and been buried with him. And as we bury them, we lower them into the waters of baptism. They are picturing for everybody, not only the death of Christ, but your own death with Christ. Romans chapter 6. We have died with Christ and been buried with him by baptism. And we are raised with Christ. We are raised just as Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus is doing this beforehand, picturing it uh, beforehand in his baptism with John. Jesus is not being baptized because he's a sinner who needs to repent. Jesus is being baptized because he is the savior of sinners who need to repent. The savior who will die, be buried, and be raised again from the dead. That is why we say here that Jesus' descent into the waters symbolizes his death on the cross. A death that he will die at this point. And his ascent from the waters symbolizes his resurrection from the dead. I, when I have baptized people, I have never once lowered somebody into the water and held them there. <laughs> For that would be murder, you know what I mean? <laughs> Everybody who has ever seen me baptized knows that they're going to come up out of that water. If I lower them in there, they're coming back up. Well, because with God, that which goes down must come up. <laughs> you see. You know, it reminds me of a favorite passage that I love to read actually at Christian funerals. Uh, it comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As a matter of fact, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment. And I'll show you what I'm talking about from the Word of God. First Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> Look with me, brothers and sisters, if you will, uh, down at, um, at verse 42. Verse 42, for the sake of time. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
Brothers and sisters, here we see that we may go down in death, naturally speaking, but we will be raised from the dead, as 1 Corinthians 15 makes plain to us throughout the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we will be raised from the dead just as Christ is was raised from the dead. What goes down with God must come up. It doesn't stay down. That's the reason why we don't hold people in the water, but just for a moment. Because in reality, death is temporary for us. It's temporary for the people of God because it was temporary for the Savior himself. He died only for a temporary period, only to be raised by the Father on the third day. Jesus is prefiguring this in his baptism with John at the Jordan River. Not only does his descent into the water symbolize his death, his coming death on the cross, and descent into the grave, but his ascent from the waters symbolizes his resurrection from the dead. And also here in verse 10, the first part of the verse, Jesus witnesses the opening of heaven, which is a sign that God is coming, that God is about to come, that God is about to do something. And in this case, the Lord is about to speak. The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, saw the heavens opened in Ezekiel 1.1, and the Bible says there that he saw visions of God when the heavens were opened to the prophet Ezekiel in his day. Here the heavens are opened to Jesus. And we have the disclosure of the heavens according to the scripture. And not only that, but we have the descent of the Holy Spirit upon our Lord Jesus. All happening as he comes up out of the water. The heavens were open, they were torn open, the scripture says, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. When Jesus ascends from the waters of the Jordan, not only are the heavens ripped open, in fact, the Greek word here literally refers to being ripped open or torn open. Not only are the heavens ripped open, but the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. You see, the opening of the heavens and the descent of the Spirit shows that Jesus is our access to God and he, Jesus, is God's access to us. The opening of the heavens is significant. You see what I mean when I say Mark is focusing on the event that takes place at the baptism, not other background and details that have their importance, but Mark doesn't want us 
uh, to get off on those, but to focus on the event of his baptism because the significance of it is so important that it should never be missed by believers. God opens the heavens and sends the Spirit upon Jesus as Jesus obediently does what God had appointed for him to do. To fulfill all righteousness by being baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. He is our access to God. He is God's access to us. I'm reminded of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 where he says that there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. He is our access to God. And he is God's access to us. That God comes to us through him. Not apart from Jesus, not without him, but through Jesus. God has come to us. He has come to us in the person of his only begotten son. So we have not only the dedication of the Son of God here and the disclosure of the heavens, but the descent of the Holy Spirit signifying that God is coming to us. And he is coming to us through Jesus, his obedient and humble Son, who has come into the world to save all who repent and believe from our sins. This is profound, brothers and sisters. It is powerful. Notice the imagery here. As Jesus comes up, God comes down. We will see this happen again in Scripture. For if you were to keep reading through Mark, Luke, and John, and you come to Acts chapter 1. What happens there? When Jesus ascends back to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down again. But at that time, he comes down to live within all who have repented and believed. And we see it in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is prefiguring all of this right here in his baptism by John in the Jordan River. It's amazing and it's profound to consider it. But let me also say this to us as a point of practical application. Anyone as a Christian who obeys God faithfully as Jesus did will experience the power of God's grace, the presence of God's Spirit, the anointing of God's Spirit upon your life as a Christian believer. In other words, God 
will fill you with his spirit when you obey his word. God will come to you when you obey him. For, for God loves obedience. God embraces an obedient saint and servant who belongs to him. God embraces his son here. For the obedience that Jesus has already demonstrated in doing what he is doing by being baptized by John in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit comes and lights upon him in the form of a dove. Now, I think it is universally known and understand and understood that a dove symbolizes peace. You see, it's the peace of God that comes because of the descent in death and the ascent in resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the peace of God comes. That's how we experience the peace of God through what we know as the gospel of Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, that he reigns supreme. And he told his disciples that the spirit would not come until he ascended back to the father in heaven. And when he ascended, according to Acts chapter one, then in Acts chapter two, the spirit of God came. Not only that, but in verse 11, we have the declaration of God the Father. The heavens are ripped open. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus as Jesus ascends up out of the water. And God speaks. Verse 11 says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. These words from God are words that are also recorded in the Old Testament in Psalm number 2, verse 7. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, the scripture there, God says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm number two is what we refer to as a royal enthronement psalm. A psalm that would have been used uh, by David the king. Written by David the king for purposes of enthronement. A royal enthronement psalm. Well here, God declares Jesus to be his son. Now, Jesus sees the heavens opened and experiences this. We're told elsewhere that John the Baptist saw this and witnessed it also. We're not told for sure that anybody else saw or heard or understood or witnessed the magnitude of this, which also distinguishes Jesus from the throngs of thousands of people who came to be baptized by John, however sincere they may have been, they came not completely understanding the significance of everything that John the Baptist was doing and had been called to do. 
In fact, we know there were many there who did not understand it because the representatives of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious authorities of that day, did not understand the significance of John the Baptist and what he was doing. Neither did the crowds understand completely the significance of John the Baptist and what he was doing. They heard John gladly, and most of them obeyed the commands of John in his preaching, and they were baptized by him, uh, no doubt by the thousands, in the Jordan River. But it is Jesus, and Jesus alone, who completely understands the significance of this scene and everything that is happening here. Which is why he shows up onto the scene as he does obediently doing the will of his father in heaven. You are my beloved son. The voice from heaven. Thinking about that voice from heaven. Yes, I'm reminded of the profound impact that that voice had upon the prophet Ezekiel when God spoke to him. Or when God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and called him in Isaiah's vision. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responded, here am I, Lord, send me. I'm reminded of that voice of God's majestic power and glory that shook Daniel the prophet and Daniel fell down as though he were dead. Here God speaks. He speaks to the Son. He declares the Son and His divine pleasure with the Son. You are my beloved son. You know, let me just ask this. If Jesus is beloved by God the Father as the son of God, shouldn't he also be beloved by us? No, we're not God, but nevertheless, he should be beloved by us as well. We ought to love him and worship him because he is the son of God who died on the cross to save us from our sins. How much do you actually love Jesus? The answer to that question is found in how you live and how much you obey. And how willing your heart is to obey the Lord and walk with him. How much do you love Jesus? Is determined by how willingly you are to walk in the newness of life. As the scripture says in Romans chapter 6. How much you and I love Jesus. Is reflected in our humility and obedience To God, how much you love Jesus is revealed in whether you're going to obey God and walk with him. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Which leads me to this question. Because we see here God's divine pleasure with the son of God. 
But what about God's divine pleasure with us now who claim to follow the Son of God? God has said of Jesus, you are my beloved Son and I am well pleased with you. I don't know about you, church, but as a child of God and as a servant of God, I know and I am thankful that I am loved by God. But I also want to hear God say, well done. Well, I am well pleased with the way you think. I am well pleased with the things you think about. I am well pleased with the words you use. I'm well pleased with the words you speak about me, with the words you speak within yourself. With, I am pleased with the words you speak to others. I am well pleased with how you walk, with how you live, with the choices you make, with the life and the years that I have entrusted to you, with the decisions that you have done with your life. I am well pleased. Can you say that God is well pleased with you now in your life? If you cannot say with confidence that God is well pleased with you in your life now, guess what? This is what you need to do. Exactly what John was talking about here in Mark chapter 1. Repent. Repent. Return to the Lord. Or turn to the Lord for the first time. But repent. For you see, brothers and sisters, there is nothing greater. There is no greater examination, no greater evaluation than God's evaluation of us as to whether he is pleased. How often do you ask God in prayer, Lord, would you be pleased with this before I do it? Would you be pleased with this before I make a decision, before I choose? Before I decide, would you be pleased? Lord, what would you be pleased with is my first priority. Why? Because the pleasure of God is the same thing as the will of God. If you want to do God's will, well, God's will is whatever pleases him. And we have not only an example of how to please God, we have the ultimate example for how to please God in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we learn how Jesus pleased God by learning the Word of God, by reading the Word of God, by reading the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, for example, right here in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to know how Jesus walked, that is to say how Jesus pleased God, all you got to do is read the Word of God. Read the Gospel of Mark. 
For starters, in its entirety. And you'll be instructed on how Jesus pleased God. And you'll have the preeminent example on how we should walk to please God. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, God speaking these words to Jesus uh, in many ways is very much more significant and different than God speaking these words to us. Why? For we are not the Savior. We are God's servants. We are the ones who are saved by the Savior. But yet it is also true that we should take from this as a point of Christian application to our lives. Does God say to you, you are my beloved child? With you, I am well pleased? Can you say that God looks upon you with pleasure? Can we say that he looks upon us with pleasure? That is the question for us today. For God looked upon his son with great pleasure. And right here, brothers and sisters, Jesus went down into the waters of the Jordan. And when he came up, something profound happened. God the Holy Spirit and God the Father came down. Here we witness the meeting of the Holy Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. This, brothers and sisters, is a defining moment in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It is the inaugural event of Jesus' public ministry. And in it, what God has to say about it, he says to Jesus, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. I hope we, brothers and sisters, will recommit ourselves to walk with the Lord in such obedience and hum humility and righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but genuine, authentic righteousness in our lives and obedience to his word, that God would look upon each of us and say, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. If you are here or online, and you cannot say with confidence that God is pleased with you, you cannot say with confidence that you belong to God. Now is your moment. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and turn to the Lord. And if you know the Lord but you straight away, now is the time to repent and return to the Lord. For remember, at the heart of the gospel, at the beginning of the gospel, is the call to repentance and faith. Maybe you need to return to the Lord because you strayed away. Or maybe you need to turn to him for the first time. In either case, God's gracious arms are open for you now while there is still time. Especially for you who are not saved. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right where you are. 
You can surrender your soul, your heart, your mind, your life, and your all to Jesus, who is Lord and Savior, and who is the only one worthy and able to save us. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you will help anyone under the sound of my voice who has heard this message of your word, who needs to repent and believe the gospel, who needs to be saved. We pray for their salvation right now. We pray that they will repent and believe the good news of your grace to them that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose again and he reigned supreme and he will return soon to judge the living and the dead. And oh God, for those believers who strayed away who need to return to you, we pray right now that they will return to you in repentance and recommitted trust and faith, knowing that you are a faithful God who has never failed us. Thank you, oh God, for your grace and your mercy and your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Let the church say amen. Amen. Thank God.